Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. Amen. You may be seated. Man, what a joy to be able to worship the Lord together. I want to thank the worship team uh, for leading us this morning. Pastor Cameron uh, is away on vacation, and uh, it's good for him uh, to be able to get away and get some rest. And so thank you uh, to the team and Lori Beth for uh, giving leadership this morning. Uh, in that. This morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, uh, open it with me this morning uh, to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. And if you've been with us uh, for the last several months, we've been walking through the the letter that Paul has written to the Galatian uh, Christians, to the Galatian churches. And what we find in verses 8 through 20 is a little bit of a shift. Um, he's he's going to change his tone, if you will, uh, in what he's communicating and what he's writing. If you remember, the last several weeks have been uh, somewhat heavy, if you will, uh, meaning this. like We've been looking at some theological uh, terms, some understandings of the doctrine of what it means to be Christian. Uh, Paul has taught us uh, that we have been justified by faith. Now that word justified that he uses, uh, it's a judicial term. It's a courtroom uh, type language where the judge declares the guilty not guilty. That's who we are in Christ, that we are guilty as sinners. But when we place faith in Jesus, God looks upon us and he says, not guilty. Uh, we've learned and we've seen that, uh, that because of our sin, Jesus had to die in our place, that he redeemed us. He uses this idea of redeemer and it's that he's purchased us, that he's purchased our freedom, that we've been enslaved to sin and that we've been set free. He's purchased us in that and that he became a curse for us by dying on the cross. We've looked at that. We've looked at the idea that in Christ Jesus that we are sons of God, that he adopts us into his family. He doesn't just set us free, but he sets us free and then brings us into his family. And we are heirs to him of the promise. And it's a beautiful thing. So we've been looking at some of these heavy theological terms, but what we're going to see in verse 8 through the following verses is that Paul shifts from the theologian who's teaching to the pastor who's pleading. He shifts from this idea of, let me teach you, let me remind you of these truths, to now he speaks to the very heart of the people. And he pleads with them. And he draws them in. And we're going to see in verse 19 that he pleads and he longs that they are formed by Christ. He said, may Christ be formed in you. Now, as we think about this idea of Christ being formed in us, it reminds me of some scripture in the Old Testament where it says, I am the clay and he is the potter. That we're simply just the, the clay, our lives are in our Father's hands, and He, the master potter, is, is working it, and He is molding it, and He is shaping, it, and He is chiseling, and He is carving, and He is building a masterpiece within us. I'm reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul says that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is not from us but from him so that people can see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they look at us, they don't see us. They see simply the treasure within us. Why? Because we're 
earthen vessels, being molded, being shaped. This morning, as I've been preparing for this and praying through this passage and thinking through it, I I can't help but say, as Paul says, and plead with you this morning, may your Christianity not be simply just a ritual that you engage in or a mental exercise to practice, but may Jesus form himself all throughout your life. And this morning, as we read this passage and as we enter into this time of studying God's word, would you be willing to say to God this morning, God, here's my life. Would you do what you want with it? Would you form me into what you want me to be? It's a bold prayer. but That's my prayer this morning. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 8. Let's read it together. It says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Do you see the emotion that's starting to build up, that's starting to well up in Paul's heart for his people? And he calls them in verse 12, brothers. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, what he means right there is not that they looked at him and said, oh my goodness, Jesus Christ himself is here. No, what this means is that His life was lived in such a way where Christ has been forming him that when they see him, they see Christ. A person who is sacrificing for them, who's pouring out for them, who's speaking to them a word from the Lord. They see a messenger from God as if he's Christ himself. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, I don't know about you. Did you know that in Scripture it talks about gouging out eyes, right? Like that's, that's pretty morbid and gross. But what he's saying is, and we'll get to this, Paul's most likely the disease, the ailment that he had, that he speaks to, was some form of an eye disease that made him quite honestly uh, disgusting to look at. And he built a relationship with them so much so that he says, I know you would have given me your own eyes to help me. That's the kind of relationship that he formed with them. And so he goes on. What does he say next? Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you, the truth. Can we just stop right here for a second? We could preach a whole sermon on this. We live in a culture in a day where truth is not accepted, that you become an enemy for speaking truth. But here's Paul pleading with them because he loves them. And he goes on, what does he say? Verse 17, they make much of you, 
Who's they? Those are the agitators, the Jewish uh, Judaizers that have come in. But for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may, may, mu- may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Now, verse 19, here it is. He goes from you to brothers to now, verse 19, my little children, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until what? Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is perplexed. He is confused. He is utterly emotionally bought into this idea that he needs and longs for them to be formed by Christ, but what they're doing is turning away. So this morning, the question for you is this. What or who is forming your life? And what is it being formed into? What or who is forming your life, and what is it being turned into? What is it being formed into? What is it becoming? This morning, my pleading with you is that Christ would form you, that he would make you into his very image, that he would be the one who does his work in your life so that your life looks like him. What does it mean for Christ to form us, for us to be formed by Jesus? Well, here's my answer to that. It's very simple. Christ is being formed in us when all of our life begins to look more like Jesus than it does us. Does your life look more like Jesus or more like you? You see, the scripture says that when we become a Christian, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come, meaning that he implants within us his very spirit, and in that begins to shape us. And the shape ought to look more like Jesus than our old self that is gone. And so Paul addresses this with the Galatians. Now, as we think through this this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to walk through what it looks like for us to be formed in the image of Jesus. And the first one is this, that if God is forming us, if Jesus is forming us, then we will have a heart that is formed and looks like the heart of Jesus. We begin with the heart because the heart is really the epicenter. It's the control center of our lives. The wisdom of Proverbs teaches us, and it says this, keep guard or keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance. Why? For it is the wellspring of life or from it flows the springs of life. In other words, your heart is the very center of your life and everything that happens in your life flows out of your heart. And so the scripture says we need to guard it. We need to, to watch over it. We need to recognize what's going in it and what's coming out of it because it uh, controls everything about who we are. And so if we're going to have a life that has been formed by Jesus, then we are going to have a heart that has been formed by Jesus. Now, we see this specifically in verses 8 and 9. So if you look back at these verses, notice what it says. Formerly, when you did not know God... 
All right, so, so Paul is saying, formerly, there was a previous time in your life when you, the Galatians, did not know God. Now, there is a sense in which they were intellectually unaware. They did not have knowledge of God, all right? They were pagan worshipers. They were idolaters. They did not know the true God. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about informational, intellectual knowledge. When he uses the word know God, what he's talking about is an intimate relationship with God. So in other words, he's saying you currently know God, but formerly there was a time when you did not know God. Church, let me ask you this question. When was the time when you came to know God? When was the time that you entered into this relationship with him? Look, notice what he says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, but now that you have come to know God. There's this moment in time that happened for the Galatians where they were utterly unaware mentally, but they were also disconnected relationally with God. And then Paul shows up on the scene and he begins to proclaim the gospel. He tells them the good news of what I shared with you from the baptistry, that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he, that he died on the cross for you, gave his life so that you can have eternal life, that you can have relationship with him, that you can know God. And so there was a time and place where they believed in, trusted in, placed their faith in him. And in that, they moved into this knowledge of God. But in verse 8, notice what he says. Before you knew God, before this relationship, what were you? You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And what he's talking about is their paganism, their idolatry, their, their sense in which they were looking to the things of this world, and they made gods out of them. They took non-gods and turned them into gods. This is what you were before you know God. And notice at the heart of this is the heart. It's the heart. You see, how do we know if our heart is being formed into the heart of Jesus? Well, the answer to that is found in this. What do you treasure the most? What do you treasure the most? You see, before they treasured things of the world. They treasured things that their eyes saw, that their lives desired, that pleased them, that they thought would make their life better. And so they give worth to those things. They treasure those things in their paganism and in their idolatry, trying to satisfy the longings of their heart. Well, in this, what does it say? They became enslaved to those things. Now watch this. What we treasure the most is what we worship. You understand this? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, meaning this. That's where our worship is, and that's where their worship was. It was to idols. It was to idols. But notice what he says. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God. In other words, you have turned from those idols and you have come into relationship with God. You've come to know God. And then he gives a clarifying statement. He says, or rather, what? To be known by God. And I think he gives this clarification because he wants to make sure that the reader doesn't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not talking about informational, intellectual religion. He's talking about relationship with God. It would be like me saying, I know the president of the United States. 
I know his name is Joe Biden. I know some information about him. I know all sorts of things. It's intellectual. I don't know him. We've never met. But I know about him. But I can say with certainty, I know my wife. I've met her. I've been with her. We share intimacy with one another. We know each other. And this is what he's talking about. You have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. My wife knows me, and I know her. This is the picture of what it means to be in relationship with God. Which means that in that, the heart is aligned and attached, and there's union, and there's community together in that relationship. But notice what he says in verse 10. Rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? In other words, what Paul is recognizing is this, that their treasure and their heart is shifting away from this intimate relationship with God Almighty, and it is being enticed and enslaved back to the things of this world. They're reverting back. Their heart is being shifted, not being formed by Jesus, but rather being formed by the things of this world. Now, this is really important for us to understand because there are some of us in this room who would say, well, that's not me. I love God. Yes. But notice, notice what Paul does here. A, a quick misunderstanding of this, if you just read it quickly, would make you think that Paul's concerned that they're going back to their pagan ways, pre-Christ. But we know at the very heart of Galatians, the issue is not that the Judaizers are showing up and saying, rebel against God and go live a sinful pagan lifestyle. It's no, it's rather be more, you ready for it? Religious. Be more religious. Follow more laws. In fact, you need to be better so that God will approve you. And what Paul says, notice this, how can you be turning back to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So what Paul is doing, and this is profound, he is equating paganism with religious idolatry. In other words, the person who is very religious, who doesn't have a heart formed by God, knowing God, is just as lost as the pagan. The problem is he or she thinks he's okay. But the heart is far from God. The heart in its pride is turning to works. The heart in its pride is turning to self. The heart in its works is, in its pride is, is saying, I've, I've got to figure this out. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. You have been known by God. You have intimacy with him. Don't turn away. Don't allow your heart to be shaped again by something else. And, and here's the truth that we need to understand, church. Listen to this. Don't miss this. Your heart is an idol factory. Your heart is an idol factory. 
Meaning this, that when your heart is not being formed by God, it is being formed by something else. It is looking to something else. It is turning to other things. And in those turning to those things, it might be benign. It might mean, it might be minuscule. It might be okay. But in the end, if we aren't allowing God to form our hearts, our hearts will turn to those things and make them idols. Religion? Church? People, relationships, money, power, prestige, you name it, our hearts will turn it into idols if we're not careful. And here's why. Notice what he says. It's the worthless elementary principles of the world. We talked about that phrase a few weeks ago, and there's an understanding in which that refers to in that biblical time, in that time and culture, to the evil spirits in this world. Now you're like, hold on, I didn't show up here to talk about evil spirits. I understand, but listen, the scripture is very clear that we have an adversary, Satan, and he's got demons, and they want to kill, steal, and destroy your life. They want to devour your life. And here's a subtle way that they do it. They take your heart, and they put very enticing good things in front of it, and they say, find your satisfaction here. Enjoy this. This will bring you pleasure. This will bring you joy. This will bring you all of these things. And your heart shifts from being formed by God, and it starts to be formed by these things, and then he has us. And Paul's pleading with him, no, 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 no. Guard your heart. Watch your heart. What's happening in your heart? You see, here's the implication of it. Look at verse 15. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says this. He says, What then has become of your blessedness? Now, I don't know about you, but no one's ever asked me that. What has become of your blessedness, Pastor? Like, that's a weird sentence, isn't it? Like, you're not going to go around and say that. Now, some of your translations may say, what has become of your joy? Now, that makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? See, that word blessedness that's used in the original language is the same word that's used In the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst in righteousness. The word blessed there, the the word there simply means this, the well-being that comes from right standing before God. In other words, the joy that is built up inside of you, that overflows out of you because you're in right standing with God. The blessedness of being in right standing with God. The blessedness of being approved before God. The joy of the Lord in our salvation. In other words, watch this. Paul is saying, I'm starting to notice that that joy, that well-being, that spark, that, that the sparkle in your eye, if you will, it's fading. And here's why it's fading. Because you're allowing your heart to be formed by something else. You see, when our heart is not being formed by Jesus, then all of a sudden it affects every aspect of who we are. We lose the joy that our lives crave. And when we lose the joy that our lives crave, we, it gets the cycle, we begin to find it anywhere and everywhere that we can. What's forming your hearts this morning? What's, what's your heart being shaped after? What are the treasures of your heart? Well, we move on from the heart, and we move now to the mind. 
If we're going to have our lives shaped by Jesus, then our minds are going to be the mind of Jesus. And this one gets hard. Let me ask you a question. What, what thoughts come into your mind? What does your mind dwell on? What does your mind think on? What are the, the things in your life that are filtering through your mind? Let me try to connect some dots between the idol factory of our hearts and our minds. If our hearts are prone to produce idols, it's because our minds fail to embrace the truth of who our true identity is in Christ Jesus. What do I mean by this? Paul says, since you have come to know God, rather God came to know you, you have this intimacy with God. But yet you're turning away from that. You're turning back to idols. Why is that? How can you do this? And here's what it is. When we lose sight of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we have come to know him and that he has come to know us, all of a sudden we we lose all sense of security for who we are as individuals. What do I mean by this? If we miss this truth, if we stop dwelling in our minds of our adoption, of our sonship, of our identity in Christ, what happens is that all of a sudden we become insecure and unstable in who we are. And when we do that, we begin to search for and turn to tangible things to feel secure, to feel stable, to feel loved, to feel in control. All of these things are things that begin to process in our mind and then go into our heart and then we turn to those things and they become idols. Why? Because we've lost sight in our minds, in our thinking of who we are in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, remember, dwell on, know your identity, that you are known by God. You don't have to work to be lovable. You understand that? God loves you just the way that you are. However you walked in this building this morning, not externally, but internally, God loves you. God loves you, but he loves you so much not to just leave you where you are. He wants to form you, and he forms us through our minds. How do we know that? Listen to what the scripture says, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what do we do? We think on those things, the scripture says. This takes discipline. This takes work. This takes 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And what do we do? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. We allow Christ to form our minds by filtering what comes in our minds. And we take captive the things of God, the things that are true, the things that are right, the things that are good, the holy and pure. And this is a powerful verse, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we, those who are in Christ Jesus, who being formed by him. What does it say? We have the mind of Christ. So, in other words, the thinking of Jesus ought to be the thinking of you. 
the way that you process, the way that you interpret, the way that you understand, the way that you see, the worldview in which you live, the way that you think ought to be undergirded by Scripture, by truth, by the things and the ways of Jesus. Why do we engage in God's Word? Because it orients us to truth. It orients us to truth. Now let me tie together the mind and the heart. There's a scripture in the Psalms that says, I have hidden God's word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against him. This morning, you know how things just pop up in your mind. I wake up this morning, I'm getting ready. It's early this morning, and all of a sudden my mind thinks about that verse. It was as if the Lord put it in my heart, in my mind. I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. And then all of a sudden, God began to do something in that moment in my mind. And he began to reveal to me that I was misunderstanding it for all of these years. You see, for me, it was if I memorize a scripture, then I won't lust as much. If I memorize scripture, then I'm not going to say bad words. If I memorize scripture, then I'm going to have a better attitude and I'm not going to get angry. If I memorize scripture, it's going to keep me from sinning. And that is true. But it was as if God this morning showed me something much deeper about that verse. Here it is. You ready? Remember, our hearts are idle factories. But when our minds memorize, scru- memorize truth, scripture, it implants within the idle factory. You ready for it? The very thing that will protect our hearts from making idols. Why is it that we not sin against him? Because what is it that drives our sin? It's idol worship. It's turning away from him. And all of a sudden, when we memorize scripture and we implant it into our hearts, it breaks apart that idol factory. And it makes it a place of honor before God. This is how we do it. Our mind, or our heart, our mind. And now number three is our mouths. Our mouths. Now you're like, could you just please stop at the heart and the mind? Because that's in a subjective reality out there that's just floating in space. Now you're going to start talking about what comes out of our mouths. You see, if Jesus is forming our whole lives, then the words that we speak will be words that reflect Jesus. What's coming out of your mouth? What does your spouse hear you say? What do your kids, your grandkids hear you say? What does the neighbor next door hear you say? What does the coworker in the break room hear you say? What does the person that sits next to you in class hear you say? What do they hear you say on the ball fields, the golf course? Our mouths need to reflect that God is forming our hearts, that he is forming our minds, and he is forming our mouths, and we are speaking the things of God. God has given us a tongue. He has given us a mouth to use for his glory. James cuts deep to the heart when he says this about the tongue. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, st- uh, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue, is what James says. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, for with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Wow. 
But Paul says, no, 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 no. If Christ is being formed in you, then the mouths that you, the words that you speak with your mouth will reflect him. No human being can tame the tongue. That's the point. That's why it's Christ forming himself in you. Only he can tame the tongue. Only he can be the one that brings the change to the words that come out of your mouth. It doesn't matter what you say. Why? Because it's all flowing. Where? From the heart. That's fueled by the mind. You notice what Paul speaks. He speaks truth. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Jesus was an individual who spoke truth, but he seasoned it with grace. He was full of grace and truth. Listen, the words that we speak as Christians in this culture and in this world need to be full of grace, and they need to be full of truth. Some of us are really good at spewing truth, but it comes across as extremists and idolatry, or um, is, is angry Christians, if you will. Some of us are guilty of just nothing but grace and leaving out truth, and in that we welcome all things and we begin to water down the truth of God's word. But no, we as Christians, we must uphold both grace and truth with our mouths. And so then we move on from the mouth and we move to the hands. And we see that the hands, what are hands? Hands are the instruments of our work. It's what we accomplish things in our life. And ultimately the question is this, is God forming within you a, a desire that with your hands you are building up the kingdom of God or are you building up the kingdom of self? And we see this in Paul and these agitators, these Judaizers. What Paul is doing, if you notice, we see in verse 13, why in the world that he's even sharing the gospel with them. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. In other words, he was stuck there in Galatia because of this most likely eye disease that he had, and he couldn't go anywhere. And so rather than sitting there moan and complain about the struggles and the trials and the difficulties of his life, he says, no, 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 God's given me hands and a life to use to build his kingdom. So he invests himself relationally into these Galatians, proclaiming the gospel with his mouth. Why? Because his mind and his heart have been saturated and formed by God. He's building the church. He's building the kingdom. But what does he say about the Judaizers? What are they doing? He says, they make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They are building their own kingdom. See, church, when God forms us, you will live your life in such a way where you are building up the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man. What is going to count at the end of it all? What have you built that will last? Are you building things for this earth and this world or for the world to come? And then finally, the last one is this. We move to our feet. You see, we want Jesus to form our minds and our hearts, yes, but when he forms our feet, it requires us to go to places that we might not otherwise go. I want you to think about Jesus and the fact that he was on his throne in heaven in all perfection and all glory, but yet because of his desire to see you in relationship with him, he gets up on his feet, if you will, and he comes to earth. 
And while he's on earth, as he's going about his ministry, I love the story of the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman that the Jewish people um, absolutely hated and despised and would never encounter uh, with and never have a conversation with. But it says that he walks into Samaria. He goes into the land that the Jews would never walk into. And he walks to a well and he has an encounter with a woman that no Jewish man would have an encounter with. And he sits down with her and he fellowships with her and he communes with her and he has a conversation with her and he reveals reveals to her who he is. His feet took him there. Listen, church, I wonder if some of us are stagnant in our faith because our minds are full and our hearts are full, but our feet have stayed still. This last few weeks, um, Jeff Postel and I have been having Zoom meetings and conversations with different missionaries and church planners talking about future potential partners for us as a church. And the the more I'm having these conversations with these guys, the more that I'm realizing that the discipleship process, the spiritual formation process within us of Jesus forming us can't be complete until it also affects our feet. The Great Commission very much says, therefore, what? Go and make disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to pack it all up and move to Africa or Brazil or, you know, the furthest uttermost parts of the world, but it might mean that for some of you. But here's what it does mean. It means that we can't be idle. We can't sit still. We can't stay where we are and just soak and soak and soak. No, we have to go. Listen, if, if you're a sponge and you're just soaking in a bucket of water, it's useless, It's time to get out of the bucket and move and go to a place that is dry and thirsty and pour out what God has infused into you as he has formed you. It requires your feet to take you there. This is what Paul's doing in the life of these people. He is gone. He has walked with his feet. The scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, bring the good news. Now, I said something in the first service that was probably offensive, and so I might as well just say it again here. Some of us have become professional Bible studiers. You've taken countless Bible studies. Your mind is full like this sponge. Can I just implore you? Can I just plead with you? Would you just be willing to get up on those feet and go to somebody and pour it out over them? Let me just get really practical. God, for whatever reason, is blessing this church, and he is bringing lots of preschoolers and lots of children to this facility. We're having record numbers of preschoolers and kids every Sunday and now every Wednesday as well. We have, how do I say this, ample opportunity for you to invest your life And so for you to have Christ form your feet, it might mean this, that you need to walk out of your life group, adult life group or adult Bible study, and walk yourself down to the preschool hallway to these little kids that don't know anything and pour your life out on them. It may mean on Wednesday nights, instead of doing a Bible study that you've always wanted to do um, because you've done all of them, you want to do the next one, that you say, you know what? I'm going to forego it this time, and I'm going to pour my life out on these kids. We've got 45 kids on average on Wednesday nights coming, and we only have a few leaders. We need more leaders. 
It may just mean that God is forming, he has formed your mind, he has formed your heart. Would you be willing to go? It may not be preschool, it may not be children. Can I just tell you, but God is doing such a good work. There are some ladies in our church that said, I believe that God is calling us to move us, to take our feet and start a women's Bible study for single women. And I'm like, well, who's going to come to that? They're like, we don't know, but this is what the Lord's leading us to do. Did you know that twice I've called guests that have shown up on Sunday mornings and through conversation found out that they're single moms? They're walking through some hard things. And I said, hey, I've got a place for you. There's some ladies that God has formed their lives and infused their feet. And so they've gone and they've opened up these doors for you to minister to them. And we've had opportunities to minister and pour out in incredible ways. Why? Because... It's infused their whole life. He's formed their whole life, and it's formed their feet, and they're getting in the game. Can I just plead with you, if you have not gotten in the game, get in the game. Let God form your whole life. Now, I've gone over it. I do that a lot, and I apologize. Sorry, Ricky. For those of you on Facebook last night, Ricky made a very nice post about me. He said, don't let pastor see that as... Um, Time change, fallback Sunday, that just, he's going to think he gets to preach an extra hour. And I was like, and then someone reminded me that my wife is teaching three-year-olds right now, and she's probably sitting there thinking, when will he finish? Let me finish with this. God wants to form your life. But for whatever reason, some of your lives, some of your hearts are actually hard. They're dried up. For some of you, it's because you've never come into a relationship with Jesus. The scripture says that when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he takes the heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh so that he can form it, he can mold it. But some of you with the heart of flesh have allowed idols into your life that have hardened your heart. You've allowed the bitterness and the brokenness of situations and circumstances And what I would plead with you today is this, that if you would just simply turn back to Jesus, he will take care of softening the heart. All you need to do is say, Jesus, here's my heart. Here's my life. Form it into your image. Would you be willing to do that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for hard truths. We thank you for the reminder of how easily our hearts turn to other things. So God, in this moment, would you turn our hearts back to you? God, would you reveal the idols in our life that are hardening us, and may we confess those things, and may we simply fall back on our knees before our Savior and say, Jesus, form within me, form within me your image. God, I pray that you would raise up a people in this church whose hearts and their minds and their mouths and their hands and their feet are so formed and infused by Jesus that when people see them, when they see us, they see you and their lives are transformed. They're saying, man, there's something different about those people. It's not because of us. It's because we carry within us the treasure, the power of, we're just the earthen vessel. So God, mold us into your image. Mold us into what you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. This morning we're going to stand and respond in songs. If you would stand with me, Pastor Casey's down front. I'll be down front. If you just need someone to pray with you, to encourage you, to walk with you, we'd be happy to do that. But you deal with God and what he's speaking into your heart this morning as we respond. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.